And that's all. Just one announcement. Great. What, what? Oh, it's Revelation 7. So, <laughs> yeah, we are in Revelation 7 as we are continuing on. And uh, I am, I know I said this last week and probably every week so far, enjoying our study through Revelation. Uh, just to backtrack a little bit. So in chapter 5, we see John in heaven and he sees in the right hand of God the Father the title deed to the earth. And the question is asked, is who is worthy to take the scroll and to open it, to break the seven seals? And no one is found in all of human history. No one is worthy to take the scroll. And John begins to weep because he understands what this means is, is that if no one can open the scroll, nobody can receive the title deed to the earth, then mankind will continue in their downward, downward spiral. And then the angel says, No, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And Jesus comes and he takes the scroll and he begins to break the seals. And we talked about that we know that that's a title deed because it was in the Hebrew culture to uh, lease out your land. You couldn't sell it. It always had to stay within your family. So there would always be an inheritance. But when you lease it out, it would be in a scroll that looked just like that. And that the seven seals represented the seven years of the lease. And then, then you break them and reclaim your land. And so the Lord is breaking the seals of the scroll and reclaiming his ownership of the earth. And in doing so, evil and sin itself, this is the beginning of the end. The enemy knows that his time is short. And we looked at last week in chapter uh, 6, the breaking of the first six seals. Someone's doing a little construction next door. Yeah, skill saw with a dull blade. That's what that is. <laughs> Kayla, maybe you could just close that door. I think it's coming through that side. Um, or it's coming in my left ear. So in the breaking of the, the six seals, we saw our, in chapter 6, as he breaks the seals, first of all, we see the, the four riders of the apocalypse is what they're usually referred to. And these are unleashed on the earth for the great tribulation. Now, while they're on the scene, their effect is over the long term, right? And so they're released, but it's not an immediate effect. The first rider was the Antichrist, and, and it, I believe it shows he's going to be on the scene before the Great Tribulation begins. Uh, it's probably going to be not in the spotlight, but just left of the spotlight, just a little off, that he's well known, he's, he's understood, people like this guy, but he's not a world leader at that time. It's after the Tribulation begins that he is going to seem to just draw everybody to himself. And then we see the plagues, and we see famine and war and all these other things unleashed. And as we talked about, that it's the sixth seal, that when that's broken, that is the beginning of the tribulation on the earth. And we line that up with what we read in Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 6. It gives us a very clear timing, I believe, of when, that, when the actual tribulation begins. 
what it will look like when it begins. We certainly don't know the day or the hour, um, but when it starts, man, uh, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be terrifying. But we also see it's going to be when the church is taken away, that the Lord is going to come for those who have given their lives to him, and he whisks us away in an event called the rapture. The rest of the earth is left here to face the worst seven years of the world's history, beginning with a worldwide earthquake that is so powerful, it says that every mountain and every island is moved from its place worldwide. And again, I made this point last week. A lot of people like to discuss and argue about the event you know, of the rapture when it takes place. We're on an island, so we go at the beginning no matter what, right? Every island is moved from its place. And, and from that chaos uh, is where the Antichrist is going to rise up from. Now, chapter 7, uh, there is one more seal remaining. Six have been broken. One remains. But chapter 7, we're going to take this little break. And so the seventh seal won't be broken yet. But we get this like insight of what's taking place in heaven, things that are unfolding after the breaking of the sixth seal and before the seventh. It's just like this little pause in heaven. So we'll pray, and then we'll get into chapter 7. Lord God, we are so grateful for your word, and we pray that you would teach us. We just want to have open ears and open hearts to receive all that you have. Uh, have your way in this place. And we pray that you just remove any distractions, whether in our minds or around us, whatever they might be, that we might not miss a thing that you have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from heaven, excuse me, ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, trees until I have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 140,000 excuse me, 144,000 of the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And that might seem a little repetitive, but there is some importance to why he lists the tribes that were sealed. Um, he starts off by saying, after these things. So John is speaking of after the events of the sixth seal being broken which is a huge event. Again, this is an action that happens in, hep in heaven with direct and immediate results of er what happens on earth. And he said, after these things, uh, 
And on the earth, there's, there's, after that seal is broken, after the tribulation begins, there is no more gray area for people concerning what they think of Jesus Christ. And right now, you can go to lots of people and, and ask them who Jesus is. And they'll say, oh, I think he was a good man, or maybe God, maybe, a, maybe the Savior. And there, there's a lot of gray area that people kind of dance around in, even within the church sometimes. The people go, oh, no, I believe he was good. Maybe not the only way to heaven, but a way to heaven. And so there's just this kind of this grayness that people don't want to make a decision. They don't want to take a firm stand on who Jesus is. That will not be the case when the tribulation begins. Because along with that rapture and along with the worldwide earthquake, we're also told that the great sign of the Son of Man has appeared on the earth. Every eye has seen him. No one will wonder who Jesus is. But not everyone will, will choose to follow him. In fact, not that many in comparison to those that are left will choose, but they will have to choose something. Either they will repent or they re will rebel, but it will be one or the other. Now John sees these four angels uh, and it, talks, it says that they're at the four corners of the earth. And this is interesting. I've had people say, well, that, that just shows how archaic and old the Bible is. It's when they thought the earth was flat and there were actually four corners to it. And they just kind of dismiss the Bible in general. That is not what this is talking about. Uh, in fact, it's funny to me because the Bible, when all of the rest of the world said the earth was flat, they mocked the Bible because it spoke about the earth being round. Uh, in Isaiah 40, also Job 26 is similar. talks about that God has hung it in space on nothing and that it continues in the course that it was marked out for it. Right? These are the things that people of old would say, see, the Bible's not true. We know the earth is flat. We know that it doesn't move. It's the center of the solar system. The Bible said, no, it's not. Right? What it's speaking of here, the four corners of the earth, it's an old term. We don't use it so much anymore, but it's the idea of the four points of a compass. It's, it's north, east, south. Did I miss one? Northeast? It's all four points of the compass. South and west. North, east, west, and south. There we go. Uh, and the idea is it's the whole earth. They have charge over the whole earth. There isn't any area. There isn't any point they don't have a authority over at this point. Right? And they're holding back the wind, which at first doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But when you realize how much damage that's going to do, how much depends on our, our life and our world simply by the wind. Now, again, remember, this is after a worldwide earthquake and all of the chaos that came with that, plus the rapture of the church and whatever chaos ensued after that. There's lots of destruction that has already happened, and now no wind. So pollution, smoke, dust, all of that stuff just hangs in the air. And then also consider that all of the things that work in the water cycle of the earth, of water evaporating and turning to clouds and then moving over the land and raining, that's not going to happen either. It's all dependent on the wind. We're told in Matthew 24, and then we'll see it throughout uh, the book of Revelation, that it's going to be a time of terrible drought and a famine, and this explains a big part of it. 
Now, we don't know how long this lasts. We don't know the whole timing, but there is a destruction that takes place directly because of this, and that's what these angels have been sent to do. And it may be that there's even more destruction on top of this that they have the authority to do, uh, whether that's continuing to hold back the wind or allowing the wind to be released isn't clear. But this other angel says he comes from the east or he comes down from the east uh, and that he tells them, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until he has sealed the servants of God. 144,000. This is important. Like I said, even though you read that list of the tribes and, okay, I got it, 12,000 of each. But it's important because there are some really wrong teachings out there, especially concerning Israel. And to me, this puts them all to rest. There uh, is a teaching out there that says that God is done with Israel. They had their shot, they rejected the Messiah, and they've turned their back on God. So God has turned their back, uh, his back on them. And it's called replacement theology. The, the idea that the church is actually the new Israel, that, that Israel doesn't receive any promises anymore, they're done. But now all the promises for Israel belong to us. That's a dangerous, dangerous doctrine. And it is absolutely not true. Uh, I think one of the clues to us, and again, you find this within churches, you find this uh, within ministries, that it's subtle, it's in the background, but man, when it's there, we need to take notice of it. It doesn't mean that every person that has that is necessarily evil, but I think they've grabbed onto something that can lead them in a, in a completely wrong direction. And one of the things that tells us how bad that idea can get is that replacement theology was the driving theology behind the Nazi party. That they believed that they were replacing, getting rid of, erasing Israel. Now again, it doesn't mean every person who holds on to replacement theology is a Nazi, but it does give us a clear goal of what the end of that road looks like, right? Now, I believe Scripture is absolutely clear, Old Testament and New Testament. God is not done with Israel. Paul makes that very clear in Romans. God is not done with Israel. He hasn't turned his back on Israel. Their eyes are closed for a time, but they will be opened again. And I think for us, why this is so important, well, there's lots of reasons, but I think one of the reasons that it's so important for us is that if God would break his covenant with Israel, and if God does not keep all every single one of his promises to Israel, then why would we believe he will keep his covenant to us or keep even one promise to us? The replacement theologist doesn't ever go that far. That if the church replaces Israel, well, then who replaces the church? Because that's how it should go, right? However, when we understand and we know that God will absolutely keep his covenant to Israel, then we can trust he will keep his covenant with us. When we know that he will fulfill every promise he's ever made to Israel, then we can stand firmly upon every promise made to us. And by the way, we're the adopted kids. 
We're the, we're the ones that are brought in. We're grafted into the vine. We're the Gentiles that have been brought into Israel, not vice versa. Without them, we're nothing. And it's good for us to remember that, that we're, we're brought into the family, but they were born into the family. God is going to be faithful and keep his promises. Um, now, another teaching that's out there uh, speaks uh, kind of, and there's groups and cults and even people groups or different nationalities sometimes will, will make these claims that they are the lost tribe of Israel. And that in saying they're the lost tribe of Israel, kind of claim some authority, like they, they've got promises that don't belong to anybody else. And, and even sometimes say that those promises are above the rest of Israel, because they're the lost tribe of Israel, the mysterious lost tribe of Israel. Um, there's some big problems with that. No matter who says it, there is no record of any of the tribes ever getting lost. <laughs> and so when people make those claims, it's usually with the story of, well, you know, a tribe, a tribe of Israel decided they were just had enough of Rome and they were going to just beat it. And so they all headed up north and then they just disappeared. Well, that would have been recorded in Roman history. It's not. Would have been recorded in Jewish history. It's not. There's nothing to substantiate that claim. Now, again, not always, but a lot of times with that story of the tribe that headed north, they say, well, it was the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan decided to leave and they took off and they became the Danish people or the Danish people. Right? I'm telling you guys, I've heard this story before. But here's the funny thing. As if that story isn't funny enough on its own, the funny thing is, out of all the tribes that are listed here, Dan is not. So even if they were, that's us. We're the mysterious lost tribe of Dan. <laughs> well, you're not on this list. None of the tribes have been lost. God knows right where all of them are. Um, even if they don't know. And, and that's the, the case with the vast, vast majority of even Orthodox Jewish people, is they don't know the tribe that they come from. And when the temple was destroyed in, in 70 AD, along with it were all of these genealogy, genealogy the genealogies, the records. <laughs> Geneal, I'm not even going to try it. Um, the records were in the temple and were destroyed. And so they might know by verbal history, but aren't sure, right? But God knows who they are, and he knows who they are, and, and how to put them together, and he calls them 12,000 from each of these tribes. Um, and there's, we could get into what tribes are there and what tribes aren't and why, but that's, that's kind of another topic. Uh, but it forms these 144,000 people of Israel, not of the church, not of people that, Gentiles that got saved. These are people of Israel, and that's why it's important that the tribes are listed. They get saved immediately after the rapture. That they come to Christ, and man, these people are going to be powerful. I picture them like Billy Graham and Superman combined. That these guys are just unstoppable. They are evangelists that are covering the world with the gospel. And they are invincible. 
I don't know how, but here in the beginning, there's 144,000 of them, and when we see them towards the end, there's still 144,000 of them. Not one of them has been lost. That through the entire tribulation, they have remained untouched, or they're still alive. Now again, why is this important? Well, because it has everything to do with God keeping his promise to Israel. That he said that he was going to bring about this time of revival where Israel would know the Messiah. And, and I've mentioned this before. I've kind of pointed to it. I want to get a little bit more detailed about it. And I encourage you guys to study this for yourself. Daniel chapter 9. It's a very, very important chapter. Not just as it comes to this section of Revelation, but just in general, this is a chapter that is like pinnacle for us to understand. Daniel chapter 9. And there, uh, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel. And he gives him some very important facts. He tells him that 70 weeks have been determined for his people, Israel, and for their holy city, Jerusalem. Now, instead of a week being a group of seven days like we think of it, uh, Gabriel's weeks or Daniel's weeks are groups of seven years. And so, uh, first of all, why that's important, the timing that's given, is that uh, it's given at a time where Daniel, Daniel's people, Israel, have been defeated. They've been taken captive. Jerusalem has been leveled along with the temple and everything in it. It's gone. And so this word comes to Daniel, and he's told about this timing. And he says that from the time that the decree goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem, it will be 69 weeks until the revealing of the Messiah, or 483 years. So we know that that decree went out. It's recorded in Nehemiah. It's historical and backed up in other places. That decree went out from that day. If you go 483 years where you land is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey's foal, what we call the triumphant entry. This was him being revealed to all of Israel as the Messiah. Dead on. And if you want to get in the, the probability of that being so perfectly fulfilled, it's almost impossible. Now, so 69 weeks have passed to the time of the coming of the Messiah. One week remains. One group of seven years remains for Israel, for Daniel's people, for Jerusalem. And this is it. The Great Tribulation is the last seven years set aside for Israel to be a time of awakening and revival and to bring them to Christ. Now, Daniel is also informed by Gabriel that for the first three and a half years, or halfway through the tribulation, that Israel is actually going to sign a covenant with the Antichrist. They're going to think he's the Messiah. They're going to think he's their Savior. Until he goes into the temple, sets up an altar, and sacrifices it to himself. Sets up an idol, sacrifices to himself. And then they'll get it that Jesus was the Messiah all along. And from that point on, the Antichrist wages war against Israel. 
This is all part of that. And again, if, if you think that Israel's been replaced, none of this makes sense. If you think Israel has been swept aside, then all the promises that Gabriel brought to Daniel from the Lord are meaningless. But when we see, again, God's going to fulfill all of them. God is going to meet Israel right where they're at, in their rebellion, actually going against the things of God by signing a covenant with the Antichrist. He still goes after them. And he still saves them. And the 144,000 are going to be a huge part of that. Not only are they going to be bringing the gospel to the whole world, they are going to be giving Israel the information and setting the example for them. And I believe they're going to be a huge part in that, that light bulb moment of Israel going, that's what they've been telling us the whole time. That Jesus is the Messiah. That this guy's the Antichrist. Those guys are right. And these guys are going to be used powerfully. Again, it's going to be used in a very big way for the fulfilling of those promises to Israel. All right, verse 9. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can number, of all nations, tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them, and they shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Absolutely. While the 144,000, their lives will be protected from the wrath of man. And again, there is a decision point that is going to take place. Everyone will have to decide where they're at with Jesus. Either they're going to repent or they're going to rebel. Those who rebel are going to go after those who repent. That's just how it's going to be. And they will take the lives of the believers that get saved after the rapture. Uh, those who come to Christ, man, when the rapture takes place, again, there's going to be a huge despairing light bulb moment for many. Those who have gone to church and just played church and, and learned their Christianese and, and could say all the things and amen and praise the Lord, 
But the fact is, they've stood on the threshold of salvation and never entered in. The rapture draws the line there. And when those people show up to church that Sunday <laughs> and are the only people there, they're going to go, we missed it. We were wrong. I was chasing my desires. I was chasing my passion, my lust, whatever it might be. And I didn't give myself completely to Christ. And I am left behind. And they will choose many. Many will choose Christ when they realize what has happened. But as a result, they will be hated by those who rebel. It says here, a great multitude that no one can number of all the tribes and nations and peoples and languages. So this is going to be a worldwide event that people all over the world, it's not just going to be in America, it's not just going to be in the you know, uh, developing countries or whatever, it's all over the place. Is the same thing happening. And these people come from every tribe, every nation, every people. And I love that. Again, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but I think it's important, especially with so many things that we see in the news and in our world today, that where there's such a division taking place between race, no matter what it is, no matter what race we're talking about, there's this division and this, this constant battle over what's taken place in the past and what should be done in the future and, and what's going to bring unity. This is the only thing that brings unity, the love of Jesus Christ. And we forget what a, what a huge difference the gospel was in its day. Because really, for the most part, in fact, in every other way that I can think of, that when a religion was adopted by a people group, that was theirs. And you couldn't join it. Right? It was divided by race. That Christianity was the first to say, no, there is no more barbarian, there's no more Scythian, there's no more Cretan, there's no, they all are one in Christ. There's no slave, there's no free, we're not divided by economic class or by race anymore. We're all one in Christ. And here again, we see in the end, even in this terrible time of the tribulation, the only thing that brings unity is Jesus Christ. And that in heaven, these people represent every tribe, every language, every, every nation. There's no division. They've all been brought together in Jesus. And I just love it. I think it's, well, this is pretty heavy things that are happening here. I think it's a great reminder to us. And they're all seen in this beautiful place in heaven. It says that they are in white robes. Before the throne of God. And this looks a lot like the group that we met in chapter 6, verse 9. When the fifth seal was broken, it says there were those who were under the altar that had been martyred. They'd lost their lives for their faith. That they'd held to the word of God and to their testimony of Jesus Christ. And because of that, had lost their lives. And in that group, I talked about how that's happening right now. That's, that's throughout the world, different places, people are still dying for their testimony of Jesus Christ. Some, some statistics say more this century than ever before. But this group, well, I actually remember the group there in chapter 6. They were told that they needed to wait just a little bit longer until the full number was brought in. And now we see a group that looks just like them also before the throne. I don't think this is necessarily the 
full number, but it's a lot of them. These are the ones that have laid down their lives for Jesus Christ. It is a huge multitude that no one can number. And they are singing and they are praising God, singing salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Whatever they went through, and I actually like the fact that we don't get all the gruesome details that have taken place to get them here to heaven. Because whatever it was, they don't regret it a bit. They're not up there in heaven going, man, you know what? <laughs> I feel like I got jipped. I mean, I, I, I did some pretty cool things for the church. I did some pretty cool things for the Lord. And look what I got. I got murdered for my faith. These guys are rejoicing. These men and women are rejoicing for what they have. They're not regretting their choice. They're not upset at the reward. They are filled with joy and gratitude and praise. And all of heaven responds to their song. And it's getting to be a pretty big group. I mean, if you've been keeping track as we're looking at what's taking place in the throne room here, we started off with four living creatures and 24 elders, and then we had 10,000 upon 10,000 angels, and now we have this multitude that cannot be numbered. It's a big group. It's a big worship service. It's a big choir, right? Now, John is watching this whole thing, and I love, I, I guess, the reality of John, because I tend to think that, you know, you think about John or any of the apostles, that they probably were pretty smart guys, especially by this time, you know, that they probably were able to keep up, but John doesn't. And it makes me feel better about myself. I don't know why. <laughs> that, that John's watching this whole thing, and he's got a question brewing, but he doesn't speak it. And so one of the elders comes and answers this question, even though he hasn't said anything. He says that uh, one of the elders, in verse 13, one of the elders answered, saying, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? Well, that was probably John's question. Who are all these people, right? And the angel's like, hey, good question. Who are they? And he's like, well, you know. Why don't you tell me? He says, these are those that have come out of the great tribulation. Again, like I said, I don't believe this is the full number. There's going to continue to be a persecution, a heavy persecution against the church. More people are going to be added to this number. But at the beginning it will be a huge number. I think, again, what one of the things that's important for us to, to keep in mind is that they have been saved. That during the tribulation, repentance is still possible. Forgiveness of sin is still offered. Salvation is available. As I've said before, this is, while we can look at all these things and go, these are horrible events. You know, a third of the world or a fourth of the world, you know, different events, these huge numbers are given out of how many people die and all the death that takes place and all the destruction. We're like, oh, these are, this is horrible. This is the final shaking of all mankind. Where again, every gray area is removed. You've got to make a choice. We're going to see angels circling the earth, proclaiming the ever-living gospel. So no one is going to go, Jesus who? <laughs> oh, I think Jesus was a good guy. I think he was a fine teacher. No, because just those words will get you killed. So if you're going to speak them during this time, you better speak them. An absolute division 
of who is for the Lord and who is against him. And these are those that have given their lives. They were saved after the the tribulation begins, but again, they don't regret a thing. And they're saved the same way we are. I think that's also important because we kind of put this like on, on some other level or some other place. And there is some different reward, I believe, that's given to them, but they're saved in the same way we are. They were washed, they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Right? Just like us. They're clothed in Christ's righteousness. They're not there for their works, they're not there for their sacrifice, they're not there because they were simply good people but they are there because Jesus Christ has shed his blood for them and they have put themselves under his forgiveness. As I said, I think they do receive some extra reward or different reward than others will um, because they're given a special place. They're given this place there before the throne, day and night in this worship service and this close relationship that they have with the Lord. Now, to some degree, it's the same relationship we'll all have. But the fact that it's mentioned here tells me that it's like at a different level. It's at a different place. That what these people have already faced at the beginning part of the tribulation, and, and some of it's from persecution, and some of it's the horrible environment of the earth at that time, of heat and the sun striking them, and we don't even fully understand what all that means. But now they've been brought in this place of comfort, where they're being cared for by the Lord himself. What a huge contrast, right? Again, think of what they faced on the earth and the things, the difficulties, the hardships, how they lost their lives. And they go from that hell on earth to standing before the throne where the Lord is their shepherd and wipes every tear from their eyes. (laughs) Yeah, again, they don't regret a thing. And as I said, to some degree, this is true about all of us who are in Christ. One day we will all stand there. And that could be today. It could be way down the road. We don't know. But one day we will stand before this throne we're reading about right now. We'll stand in this throne room that we're trying to picture, and we can't quite get our minds around it. We will be free and complete free of all of this life. Man, what a great day. I think that's one of the things that I, as I think about heaven, it isn't even so much what's going to be there. I mean, sure, the Lord and being with the Lord and being able to really, I don't know, just put your hands on him like, hey, get real, you know? I don't know, but to some extent where you just, the reality of heaven, of course, will be amazing. But one of the things that, to me, always gets me excited about heaven is what won't be there. All the junk and garbage in me, it all gets left behind. All the sin I struggle with, all the attitude I have, all the you know, things that, I, that, just, that are just part of my flesh, it's all going to get left behind. There's not going to be any darkness there. There's not going to be any evil there. There's not going to be anyone with false motives there. That we will finally know and be known the way we've always wanted to be. And this is what's still ahead for us. Again, there's some heavy things here. We consider this great multitude that has lost their lives. And we go, that's intense. But when we understand that this is our final destination, this is where we're going. This is what's next. 
then I think it puts everything in this life into the right perspective. It still has an importance, right? We still want to be able to use this life and this day to glorify Christ, to bring people to Him, to let Him know they're loved and cared for. But the trials, the difficulties, and the junk, it's, we know it's just going to fade. Things that cause us to stay awake at night, stress out, it's all going to be left behind. And, and it should cause us, again, to have the right perspective, to go, man, man heaven is what's next. And again, the, the firm understanding that God is going to keep all of his promises. I believe that's what this chapter is pointing to in multiple ways, that he keeps his promises to Israel. He keeps his promises to us. He is able to handle all of it. And even those who go through difficulty and hardship in this life or even lose their life for the gospel, heaven is promised to them. Man, what a great reward awaits each and every one of us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.